Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to this episode. I'm glad you could join me because we get the chance to speak with Dr. Sharon McIver about many, many different topics. She has founded a social enterprise called Our Daily Waste, but she also used to work as a music journalist. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Sharon. Um, Radiohead was definitely a um, highlight. I first interviewed Johnny from Radiohead on the phone, um, and that was really funny because my flatmate had his friends around and... I sort of walked out after the interview and I had the, the tape deck in my hand and I was rewinding it and one of them said, oh, because I'd said to them beforehand, I said, oh, if the phone rings, it's for me. Yeah. Please don't answer it. I'll answer it in my room. And I came out and one of them goes, oh, Simon told us you're interviewing Radiohead. And I was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I was. And they said, yeah, whatever. And I just pushed play and it said, hi, my name's Johnny and I'm in a band called Radiohead. Wow. <laughs> and they went, oh. Oh, okay. And then about a year or so, Later, I actually got to um, interview Ed in person, and it was the first face-to-face interview I'd ever done, because Mm. mostly I did phone. And I couldn't believe that my first face-to-face was Radiohead. It was like, oh God, no pressure. Well, this is another one of those wide-ranging conversations where we touch on many different topics. If you enjoy it, then you might want to check out some of the earlier episodes, because there's now more than 60 interviews on this Seeds podcast. Now let's get into the interview with Sharon. Um, So it's a pleasure to welcome Dr. Sharon McIver here, uh, who's the founder of Our Daily Waste. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. And on this podcast, what we do is talk about purpose and why people do what they do. And Mm -hmm. we talk with a real diverse range of people. So I'm fascinated in what you're doing now and Our Daily Waste and um, kind of the background to how you set it up and, and what your purpose is. Um, but I also would love to find out more about you as a person and what's led to the point that you're at today. So do you mind just going right back to the beginning and telling us a bit about where you're from? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I grew up in Shirley in Christchurch in a um, state house. And so I'm not like John Key, but um, basically I'm the youngest of quite a large family. And I still identify as working class, partly because I've certainly never moved past that um, in the income bracket, and I still have very much working class values. So I guess for me, um, I was also brought up Salvation Army, so Mm. there was quite an interesting sort of mix of having very, very strong ethics from the Salvation Army, and um, also that understanding of working class as well. And my father was very political, and now I realise he was probably a bit of a socialist, really. And so, you know, on one hand, I had my dad sort of giving me a lot of political uh, education. And then on the other, my mum was working for a secondhand shop for the Salvation Army. So Mm. I would spend holidays going through clothes and, you know, cutting buttons off things so that they could be reused and all that side of it as well. Yeah. And and that sort of childhood, you look back and you think that shaped who you've become and in that sense of... I guess, community and, and reaching out to other people? Yeah, definitely. I think I've appreciated a lot more the, the older I got. Um, I left the Salvation Army at, oh, I think it was around about 17 or 18, and that was because they were um, anti the homosexual law reform bill at the time. Mm-hmm. And 
I didn't want to sign the petition and I certainly was not going to get signatures for it. So it was suggested that I could no longer wear my uniform because I was a fully uniformed up soldier in the Salvation Army. And um, so I had the Billy Bragg song, This Is The Sound Of Ideologies, clashing in my head at that time, I think. And that was something that really um, just I had to make the decision that this no longer suits my own ethical principles. Um, and so that was when I left and, and sort of let go of the church at that time. But I think that a lot of the the basic principles we were taught have really stayed with me right throughout life. Mm, yeah. And what sort of person were you sort of in your high school years? How would you describe yourself? Christian. <laughs> <laughs> Vehemently so. Um, but at the same time, I also had a really strong interest in music. So right. it was really clashing that I was listening to a lot of... Um, you know, the post-punk era and uh, really got into ska and really got into the, the sort of two-tone uh, music. So that had a lot of about racism and things like that. So there was this real sort of, on one side I was going to church and singing in the choir and playing in the band and on the other side I was playing, you know, Violent Femmes and The Clean and, and lots of, you know, The Beat and The Specials and that sort of thing. So mm. there was quite an interesting sort of mash-up going on at high school. Um, I wasn't particularly good at high school. I <laughs> failed UE English and got 45%, and that was the highest I got for university entrance. So I, there was no way I could have gone to university after high school. And I look back on that now, and I really do kind of chortle about the fact that, um, you know, to come from that, and then I ended up teaching English literature at university. Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> my high school years were not distinguished, let's say that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, though. You know, the, the, mm. um, what you would go on to do in academia would be so contrasting, because that's quite an unusual story, I'd imagine. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I just, it was weird, because when I left high school, I went and worked for a bank, and I worked for five years for um, Trust Bank Canterbury, as it was back then. Mm. And that was great. It's really come into play now that I've, I've got a business, because um, I just... You know, that knowing how to do basic things like balance at the end of the night and, mm. you know, all those sorts of things that really come in, in handy from banking. Mm. Um, and then I sort of left and went waitressing, which I think they were sort of eyeing me up to be a manager and I suddenly had a vision of myself in my early 20s that this was going to be my life. And so I quit <laughs> and, <laughs> and went and became a waitress which was not the trajectory the bank were expecting at right all. yeah um and then I went overseas and nannied for a year or so and um while I was overseas I had this dream of becoming a music writer so when I was in England I used to go and buy lots and lots of music magazines and read them and go to the library and get the cds out and see whether I agreed with the writer and all that um and when I came back to New Zealand I ended up working in a record shop mm. and so um, I think I'd been, I started at one shop but ended up at Echo Records and this was around about mid-90s and then a job came up at the Christchurch Press and I applied for it so it was a music writer's job and I didn't get it and then a year or so later it came up again and the editor phoned me to ask if I was planning on applying for it again. And I hadn't been, but by that time all my friends were like, are you crazy? You'll get free tickets to concerts, you'll meet all these you know, right. famous people, you'll get free CDs. Yeah. 
Like he obviously wants you to apply. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I put in a proper application and I got the job. Oh. And um, I couldn't believe it because here I was with failed university entrance English, never done a tertiary education course in my right. life. Yeah. And suddenly my name's on the bottom of all these reviews each each day or week in the press. Wow. And I kept expecting somebody to come along and tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, you don't know what you're doing. And yeah. I'd be like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> but <laughs> nobody some mistake did. Here. <laughs> so I just kept writing. Yeah. And I guess that's really why I decided to go to university because mm. I'd been writing for them for a few years and, and getting really good feedback and just thought, oh, maybe I can do something more yeah. with this. So. Yeah. And that sounds like that combined your love of music mm. with a job, right? Yeah. Like that's, oh, that's a pretty good combination. <laughs> it was a fabulous job. Yeah. I mean, I was going to live shows at least once a week. Sometimes wow. I'd just be at a show at the Ducks and it would be a local band playing and I'd really, yeah. really like them. Yeah. And I'd think, oh, well, I might as well take some notes and I'll put in a review tomorrow and if it gets printed, I get 75 bucks and the band gets a positive review. And right. they wouldn't even know I was there. So it would be right. a complete surprise to them that suddenly there would be this review in the paper yeah. that was positive. Because it was just sort of a local club thing and they didn't even yeah. know, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was, it was interesting. I was incognito for a long time where um, I could go to gigs and nobody knew me. But then the press started putting my photo in the paper uh-huh. and that just ended that right (laughs) then it was like oh no now i've got everybody in bands coming up to me wanting to listen to their music i see you know and it became when it was incognito it was fabulous because yeah you know most of my friends knew what i was up to but um you go under the radar and kind of make an appearance (laughs) (laughs) just write about it take some notes yeah. yeah and what is it that makes a good music review do you think it's Hard because I I've reviewed some bands where I personally don't like them, mm. but I can recognise a good concert right. when you see them. So I think you've got to have some honesty, and there's got to be a little bit of the writer in there for people to connect with. Mm. Um, I found it interesting when I was doing interviews with artists actually that a lot of back then too there was a lot of male music writers and very few females. There was about three of us in New Zealand writing at the time, okay. and. Um, I remember one guy saying to me on the phone, oh, wow, it's so nice to get a woman. I've just had music jocks all all day because, Mm. you know, the big artists would be there for a whole day just doing Mm. international interview after interview after interview. Scheduled in every 10 minutes minutes or whatever. And it was always the same conversation. And I think (laughs) I was able to bring a slightly different perspective. Mm. Um, And sometimes it worked really well, sometimes not so much. I thought that Ben Harper was going to hang up on me once. <laughs> and I luckily I was able to say, you know, why I'd asked him that particular question. And it I ended see. up being one of the best interviews right. I've ever done. But, wow. um, you know, he it was just the way I'd asked it. I think he was a little bit shocked. And wow. so it's, I think I asked him if he, was, if he considered himself to be an old soul. And he was early 20s at the time and he was didn't quite know how to react to it. Right. But, I sort of dragged it back by saying, well, you know, sometimes I listen to your music and it makes me cry and you're young and wow. you've written this, you know, and and suddenly it became a really different interview from yeah. where it was originally. It, it was so banal than... up to that point. I and see. I was kind of struggling going, oh, give me something, you know, yeah. and then it and that, unlocked, <laughs> and that unlocked it, huh? Yeah, yeah. So having the right question is a key thing in those. Yeah. And things. I used to do a lot of research, yeah. which back then was really difficult because you didn't have Google. Right. Um, so I'd have to get any articles, magazine articles I could find on them and read those up. I had a stack of English music magazines that I would refer to and uh. and go back before. And 
and you know all the um usually you'd get an interview pack from the music company with lots of copies of interviews and I'd make sure I read them all and that I'd mm. listen to their music so I wasn't coming in cold either mm. and they knew that I had even if I wasn't a fan I'd at least made an attempt yeah. to to understand their music and all the rest of it yeah and when you're writing a review of a musician either a CD or a concert or whatever do you try to weave in like comparisons to somebody else in so that the people who are reading mm. can go oh okay Ben if Harper is similar too and then yeah is that something you're consciously doing or is it um if they're there definitely mm. and you know you'll listen to something and go oh oh that's a bit nirvana or that's a bit yeah whatever and i would put that but if they there wasn't an obvious comparison there i wouldn't try to force one right because i think that's where some music writers can try to be a bit too clever yeah um i have to admit i did have a stack i would have a stack of cds that i knew that i was going to hate right and <laughs> I used to joke with people that I would wait for PMT time. <laughs> and I'd go, right, who am I going to rip apart today? Right. And so you wrote some negative reviews as well? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and one of a particular Christchurch band that I'd written a few negative reviews and then I turned up at a party once and they were in the front playing pool and I had this moment of going, oh, oh God, oh, God, oh I wish no. oh, I hope they don't know who I am. Yeah, so yeah. that was the, the downside of being from such a small I community see. that, yeah. you know, you had to be... I tried not to be too negative, but every now and again, I'd be like, oh, man, this is just really? commercialized yeah, crap. Ripping and, it off yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And some of the artists that you interviewed, you mentioned Ben Harper. You know, are there some other names that you would say were highlights to meet, either as icons in terms of, wow, I'm meeting whoever, or in terms of the just the sheer genius of their musicality? <laughs> um, Radiohead was definitely right. a... Um, highlight. I first interviewed Johnny from Radiohead on the phone um, and that was really funny because my flatmate had his friends around and I sort of walked out after the interview and I had the, the tape deck in my hand and I was rewinding it and one of them said, oh, because I'd said to them beforehand, I said, oh, if the phone rings, it's for me. Yeah. Please don't answer it. I'll answer it in my room. And I came out and one of them goes, oh, Simon told us you're interviewing Radiohead. And I was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> I was. And they said, yeah, whatever. And I just pushed play and it said, hi, my name's Johnny and I'm in a band called Radiohead. Wow. <laughs> and they went, oh. Oh, okay. And then about a year or so later, I actually got to um, interview Ed in person. And it was the first face-to-face -face interview I'd ever done because mm. mostly I did phone. And I couldn't believe that my first face-to-face -face was Radiohead. It was like, oh, God, no pressure. Wow. And Ed was lovely. I'd been at the... Um, they did a gig at Warner's before they were famous, and mm. I'd been at that gig, but there was only about 100 of us there. Mm. And so I said to him, oh, I'm really, really sad you're not down in Christchurch this time, you know. Yeah. And he remembered that gig. He actually mm. remembered that Warner's had dirty Superman carpet. Huh. <laughs> and he that was just a fabulous interview because yeah. once he realised I'd been at that gig and he said they'd just come off all these big arenas in Japan and suddenly they're playing a horrible, grimy pub in Christchurch. <laughs> he said it was just like being back in Oxford. Bit of reality. Yeah, yeah. so that was really fun. Um, and wow. people like She Had, you know, I mean, mm. I really liked their bands. I think I did Shapeshifters' first interview for mm. Pavement magazine when okay. they were just coming out. So some of those, like for Shapeshifter, that was a real highlight because I... The very first time I saw them, I was a judge at a band competition, and I just knew I just had that absolute, wow, these guys are going to be huge. And 
that was probably the most excited I've been over yeah. seeing a band at that time. We these days there's so many sort of talent shows on TV, you know, Simon Cowell type X Factor oh. things, that sort of <laughs> stuff. Just describe what is it that you knew when you saw a band like that, you know, the X Factor. What is it that you thought, man, they are going to go far? Well, the fact that they were playing live drum and bass before anybody was playing live drum and bass, and I would later go on to research electronic music a lot more mm. and. There were UK writers saying how drum and bass couldn't be performed live, you know, back in then, mm. back then, and it was, you know, real producers' music. And I saw them at the Ducks, and I remember closing my eyes and just going, wow, mm. and then opening it and going, wow, he really is drumming that live. Mm. And they were so tight, they didn't have any vocals, which is why they didn't win the band competition, because there was a lot of points for vocals, which they couldn't get. Right. Um, which ended up with me arguing with the organiser at the final. <laughs> and I had to accept that they had to be second, <laughs> but one of yeah. us was proved right. Yes. Um, and then um, just the tightness, the fact they were playing instrumental, the fact that everybody was dancing and the music was so good. Yeah. I just, just I'd seen enough of live it. bands by that time to know it was like, well, these guys are going to go far. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And um, in terms of other people that you interviewed, because uh, people listening, obviously, most of us <laughs> never get the chance to meet these people. Was there anything, any other highlights over the time that you were doing that? Or? Um, oh, so many. I just, you know, to be ringside seat, like the manager at the Ducks was great. When it was really busy, he would let me tuck in behind the sound guys so that I had a view. And... Um, Oh, there were so many bands coming through. Salmon Old Dub were a real stronghold mm -hmm. at that time. I found it really interesting that in Christchurch at the time, we had um, sort of the rock thing happening with the Z and the feelers and the real poppy stuff. But yeah. at the same time, what was going on underground was fascinating. Mm. You know, there was a real dark so that's the alternative. electronic side of things. Well, there, there was electronic, but there was also quite a dark alternative thing going on. Bands like um, Squirm, which have had mm. films made about them. Bands like Into the Void, which is still going. All of that was happening. And so to be in Christchurch at that time and be the press writer mm. was an incredible journey in mm. terms of... And also to be working at a record shop. So I had mm. the options of I could listen to music at the record shop and then go, oh, cool, let's find out more about this. And, mm. and so, um, yeah, and I guess I... Did that job from 95, I think, till the end of 2001. So I started right. seeing the switch over to electronic yep. and the Nomad and, and, you know, producers like that that were coming through at that time. Mm, yeah. And do you play music yourself? No. <laughs> no. After I left the Salvation Army, I think I was so um, traumatized by Christmas carols <laughs> <laughs> and playing in a brass instrument very badly. Right. I do wish I had done something with my voice. Like, I can actually sing. And yeah. there is that part of me that thinks, oh, but I do get really bad stage fright. It's right. quite strange because I, I don't when I'm lecturing or anything like that, but if I, I had to sing, I'd have terrible stage fright. Yeah, so. yeah. But I, in some ways, I. I found it quite good because I'm a dancer and, and a fan. And sometimes I think it's quite good if the person who is reviewing is, isn't a musician because they can get too technical. Mm. And so I was able to write in a way that a lot of people could relate to because they weren't musicians either. Right. And that was, 
I think what kept me in the job for as long as it did really. Yeah, you were explaining the the feeling of being the listener or the yep. participant rather than the sort of technical yeah, side. Yeah, for me it was more the emotional journey. Yeah. And right. I, you know, I had my thesaurus for when I would be like, oh God, what's another word I can use? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I tried to bring a metaphor in and, and right. really... You know, I look back on some of those, and don't get me wrong, I cringe every now and again. I'll go into that particular folder of little cut-out newspaper articles and go, oh, oh, I was thinking <laughs> that day. And others I'm real, really proud of, where right. I'm like, oh, yeah, actually, that I, still I hit up. something so, there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's great. So it was that process of getting that job and doing this writing that kind of, it kind of turned your mind towards university as a potential? Yeah, well, weirdly, I went first to Teachers College. Mm. Um, I guess because of my... High school background. I for some reason didn't think I had the um, intellect to go to university, so I started off at Teachers College for primary teaching. But I did two classes as at university as part of that, mm. and I loathed Teachers College. Right. And even though my tutor told me that I was a great teacher, but that um, I should leave because the system would do my head in, and that I would was far too. Um, visionary to be able to cope with the education system Mm. and that was back in 1997 I think I was there and so by that time I'd already done these two English literature papers and absolutely loved them and and got relatively good grades I think I got a B plus and an A minus or something and Mm. that was enough for me to go right that's it I'm off to uni and once I was there right into it it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and what sort of subjects did you study I pretty much kept English lit. Like, I did a little bit of polls. Um, I did an excellent political science class on New Zealand politics right around the time we were switching over to MMP, which mm. has been great because mm. I've had a full understanding of MMP yep. since, you know, um, certainly 98, I think I did that class. So we'd yep. just got our first MMP government. So every election I end up explaining to people the 5% threshold. Right. <laughs> you know, How it works, that. yeah. Um, but... Within English literature, I did a lot of 20th century fiction. Novels were really the thing that I was into. But of course, as part mm. of that, you do do feminism and you do racism and you mm. do socialism and you pick up a lot of the other subjects as yeah. part of that. Yeah, yeah it's, it's almost a discipline that requires knowledge of so many others, doesn't mm. it? If you're studying a book that's set in wherever, yeah. it, there's a lot. And also the author and what's yeah. their background and why did they write this and... Yeah, it must have been fascinating. Yeah, no, it was. And I mean, I was very lucky that I had fabulous lecturers. Mm. Um, one in particular, and um, oh, I got to talk to him recently, and I'd gone to see him about an essay, and he asked my name, and I gave it, and he instantly went into, oh, I know you from somewhere, did we? Did you go to school with me in Nelson? You know, and I was like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> I said, look, I write for the press. You probably just know my name. And... He opened up his drawer and he seriously pulled out clipped reviews that I'd done. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know, you're an undergrad and you do not expect that from your lecturer at all. And I was in a little bit of shock. And he was like, so is this really five stars? I was like, yeah, yeah, you know. (laughs) And um, he said to me, you should do something postgraduate about New Zealand music. And I said, but I'm doing English literature. Yeah. And he said, well, haven't you heard of cultural studies? And I said, no. And he said, well, we do some papers as part of English literature. You should check it out. So the next year I went and did cultural studies, and that was it. I found my discipline. Wow. I just... 
that course, I felt like everything that had ever pissed me off about the planet, yeah. I suddenly had the tools huh. as to why I was so angry and why I wasn't happy with the state of things. Yeah. And so when it came to doing post-grad, cultural studies was a much better fit for yeah. me to, to do the New Zealand Isn't it music. amazing how a conversation like that can influence so mm-hmm. much? You know, that this person <laughs> would have your clippings in a drawer and yep. you walk in, he's like, that name, I know that name. Yeah. Like that it, And then it would lead to a conversation yeah. about a subject that you ended up doing. Like, so that's where I just think the universe steps in sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, that was so random. Yeah. But I came out going... Did that just happen? Did he just tell me to do a PhD? Because <laughs> like, you know, I'd never really considered it up till then. Yeah. yeah. And have you stayed in touch with them over the years? Or? Um, well, he went up to Victoria, but I saw him at Canterbury. Um, John Newton is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just saw him a few months ago, and I, I had to tell him that story. He yeah. said, look, you probably won't even remember this, yeah. but actually you're the reason I went and did that. Wow. You know. Yeah. And did he remember it or <laughs> was it? I think so. I think yeah. it was a vague sort of memory, but, um, you know, they see so many students. Yeah, that, and I, I have it now where I'll have students coming up to remind me of a lecture I've given and how it's changed them. And I'm I like, see. Yeah. Oh, yeah, vaguely. Yep. No, that was a good one. To me. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. So what that cultural studies sort of, which, uh, I guess, which is that arts degree? Is that where it fits in the scheme it's of academia? It's in arts. Yeah. Um, I used to describe it as the like the net that catches all the mm. topics that fall through the other disciplines. Right. And we steal from everybody. We steal from sociology and history and literature. And and if the if the theory fits, then that's what we use. I see. And so I sort of saw it as something that when I later went on to to study music for for the PhD. Mm. Um, it fits so well because it's a relatively modern discipline. It was started in the 1950s in some of the British, um, you know, non-Oxbridge universities. Mm. And they were wanted to look at popular culture because mm. it was so important. And, of course, there was a real snobbery around, you know, then about looking at And there still is. Mm. I mean, the amount of people that used to kind of you know, poo-poo my subject and go, what good is that in the world, you know? And right. like, oh, well, yeah. you know, it's, I've got people waiting to read my thesis and they're not from university and that would usually just shut them up. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. 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 Oh. So how would you describe it to people who have never studied it or like what are the s- essential elements beyond what you've already told, which I think is really helpful, um, but just fleshing it out a little bit more, um, what would a typical paper look like if you were going to study well, that? Say so one of the papers that... The first cultural studies um, course that I taught and I tutored, I think the first essay was um, they had to go and look at a local Christchurch business, mm-hmm. and it could be a restaurant or a shop or whatever, and looked at at the culture of that business and whether it was assimilating other cultures, whether it was um, using those cultures, that sort of thing. So I used to joke that cultural studies had taught me to read a billboard or a restaurant or a dance party or in fact a rubbish bin like I could read a book and so it taught me to look for the connections in all things and um, it taught me to look outside of you know this idea like say the bamboozle restaurant that's been in the in the paper recently well that is a perfect perfect text for cultural studies because you're looking at you know you've got 
so-called Christchurch restaurant that's employing Asian staff and yet it's taking the piss out of their way of speaking English in the menu and it's throwing sexism in there for good measure Mm. and where is that coming from and you know why it's not PC and it kind of teaches you the background things so that Mm. you can't just read something in isolation you've got to look at where it's come from and what the layers of the cultures that have contributed to that particular text or whatever that text is I see Um, yeah 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 so it's it's kind of diving deeper beyond the surface and saying, what's the history? What led to this point? Yeah. A little bit the way I've introduced this podcast, sort of what are you doing today, but how did you get here? Yeah. You know, like, yeah. yeah, oh, that's really good. So you studied that and you said you did PhD uh, focused on music? Yeah. So originally I wanted, um, because when I'd been writing for the press, I was really fascinated by how New Zealand music sounded like the landscape. Mm. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to argue. <laughs> what's that saying by Frank Zaffer <laughs> that... Um, you know, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. So I had an excellent um, supervisor for my honours year who helped me sort of put together my um, 10,000 word honours paper, which ended up being 20,000 words. Um, and he suggested that I tackle that by looking at New Zealand music video so that I could kind of introduce into how they were using the landscape in the video and then that would lead into being me being able to discuss the metaphorical aspects that you can hear, which is Mm. when you're getting into a whole bunch of esoteric stuff, it gets quite difficult. So I did that paper and I looked at about um, five or six different New Zealand music videos and two of them were in the electronic scene. One was by The Nomad um, and the other was by Pitch Black Mm. and that was Electric Earth. So it was perfect for Mm. what I was looking at. And by the time I got to 2002 and... I had the PhD scholarship and and I'd applied by saying I was going to look at New Zealand music in general. But by that time, I'd also met some really key players in the electronic scene and Mm. they were really supportive and Mm. they were just like, the electronic's going to keep going off, you should concentrate on that, you know. And it just was much easier for me to focus it down into one genre. Although I ended up kind of being two because, of course, then along came Trindy Roots and Fat Freddy's who were Mm. doing live dub. Right. So they were taking the electronic, but they were putting it back on the stage like Shapeshifter had. Mm-hmm. And then they were playing in the dance parties. So by the time I sort of got into the first year or two, I realised that there was going to be... Um, so I'd sort of narrowed it down to electronic dance music. And then I realised that the actual space of the dance parties themselves was hugely significant. And there was a very good body of research that had been done in the UK and the US on raves. And so I was able to use that. There's being nothing written in New Zealand at that level about it, of course. But I was able to use that. And then I was able to use some things that had been written in New Zealand, which was, um, so Douglas Lilburn, who's our very first electronic mm. producer, but he was a classical music, mm. uh, classical composer first. Mm. Well, he switched to um, using electronic as a form in the late 1960s. And he, in fact, started up the first electronic studio. So there was mm. things that had been written about him. And he had chosen electronic over classical because he felt that the classical tradition being European didn't fit the New Zealand landscape. Mm. So he would go out to lakes and rivers and record them and he would record found sounds and then he had this giant studio in Victoria University that he would slow them down and he would manipulate it with incredibly, now that you look at basic technology, you know, mm. he's doing loop-to-loop tapes and things like that. So I was able to use the body of work on him and the body of work on Raven and kind of merge it so that I could 
bring in this yes these artists are deliberately trying to make it sound like the landscape they're trying to make it sound like what it's like to drive in Aotearoa mm. where you've got the mountains on one side and then you'll get a glimpse of the sea and that sort of sinuous sense you get of driving in New yeah. Zealand when you get out of the main cities yeah well, that was a fascinating subject yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't like so, to do anything too easy <laughs> yeah so how long did you devote to that that must have been a couple of years seven wasn't it? years seven years <laughs> yeah My I went goodness. well over the um scholarship yeah I was broke as um and just there's obviously no way to summarize seven years of research but if you could summarize it how what were the connections that that you ended up concluding or or what is it that that you would say was woven into New Zealand music and as and then com- with the landscape in mind? Well, the connections that I was looking at were definitely the the locations of the dance parties as well. Right. So I ended up doing um, an introduction chapter and then two chapters on the actual music and then three on the dance parties because the dance parties was where the cultural studies really came into play. I that see. We were removing ourselves from the city. Mm-hmm driving or hitching or whatever to get to the event. Then you're out in the middle of nowhere and usually in very, very stunning landscapes because we've got a plethora of them and they're easy to get, Mm. you know. And I wrote one um, chapter on what they call the temporary autonomous zone. And so this is an idea that you set up outside of society and you make your own rules. Mm. And I found it fascinating that, you know, alcohol was not a big thing at the dance parties. You could take just about everything else, but the alcohol would be taken off you at the gate unless you'd hidden it very well. And that to me was really fascinating that there was this new set of rules operating that you had to be more respectful of people, you had to be community-minded. And then the musicians are playing in those spaces. Now, when you're on a dance floor, say up at Destination, which was held up at um, Castle Hill, where Mm. The Lion, the Rich and the Wardrobe was filmed. So where that battle scene was in that film, that was our dance floor right and you'd be on the ground and you'd be able to wave up at people who were on the rocks above you dancing and when you've got a full moon coming up and there's lasers going off the rocks and the band is playing some seriously good music but then they'll drop out to this beautiful little sinuous kind of oh yeah that's right and you look around you're like yeah this is what I'm hearing is what Mm. what I'm seeing Mm. and that for me was I mean, I made that connection really, I think, when I first heard Pitch Black and Epsilon Blue and we were driving down to Wanaka and I was just looking out the window going, oh, okay, I get this. Because I'd never been hugely into electronic up to that point. I was like, I get this. What I'm seeing outside is what I'm hearing inside. And it's just a continuation of all those flying mun bands like Belter Space and The Clean and HDU and all those bands that I've been really into that, I've always thought we're very landscape oriented as well. There's a real sense of spaciousness, mm. I think, that we get. And even the densest, heaviest drum and bass music still has this little, beautiful little thing that you can mm. key onto and things. Mm. Yeah. That's fascinating. And when you talked with the musicians themselves, like, did they recognize it? Was that something oh, yeah. that they said, yes, yep. we are thinking yep. about this? And It was interesting because my supervisor didn't want me to do interviews. Right. And at the time, I was really off it. But I realise now that, you know, what you've got to do around ethics and things for interviews would have really hampered it. Mm. And he was worried that if I did interviews, I was already on such an out there subject that people wouldn't take it seriously because I'd manipulated the interviews. So I had to rely 
on text, and that's what cultural studies does a lot, actually, is it relies on texts to, to bring in it. But there was enough people writing in New Zealand Musician and things like that where right. they would recognise it as well. So it was great when I got another writer mm. who had gone, oh, I can hear, da 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 And I was like, yes, excellent, yeah. I can use that. Yeah, And But when I spoke to the musicians, they, you know, like I remember the first time I met Pitch Black and I very excitedly said to, to them... Um, oh, God, I love your music. I hear the landscape in it. And this was before I started the thesis. Right. And he said, oh, excellent. We're putting it in there. Huh. So they definitely were aware that mm. that's what... And certainly when they were using recorded sounds themselves, like there's a couple of Salmonella dub tracks, for instance, that, you know, one is recorded at Kaikoura with the beach. Right. And, you know, so there's, those were great because there was no arguing. It's like, yeah. here is the actual literal it's sound. It's a clear connection, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the heart of it was arguing the metaphorical sounds. Yeah. I see, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's such a distinctive landscape, New Zealand. Uh, you know, I've lived overseas for a number of years and then came back to New Zealand relatively recently. And one of the things I love is that you just the light and the mm. mountains and the ocean. And there is something really distinctive about the landscape. So it's fascinating to hear that, you know, that was your, well, seven years is a long time. <laughs> well, that was what I looked at because I was like, okay, so everybody's written about the light with New Zealand painting. Right. And New Zealand literature has a lot of landscape references in. Yes. So to me, it was just like, okay, everything I've done with New Zealand lit around the landscape, I'll just apply that to music. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And um, as you're studying that and as you're getting closer towards the end of your studies, do you know where that's going to take you in terms of jobs and that type of thing or what? <laughs> I assumed I was going to have a nice cushy lecturer's position, but this is where it got interesting because, of course, I think I attended something like 60 um, events over that time. Right. And both North Island, South Island, I used to just travel wherever there was a party, you know, Udemini winter solstice, yep, I'll go to that, freezing, but hey, it's great, you know, and and I started picking up rubbish at the parties. Okay. And that's when my thesis got very bitter and twisted, and, <laughs> um, but it really was, as one of my supervisors mentioned, it was probably the most original part, because nobody else around the world was looking at, here these so-called cultures that sat outside of society were mm -hmm. just as commercialised and getting more and more commercialised with each party and you know I could sit around the fire and talk to all the um, tripping hippies all night and they'd all go on about how much they love the land but they'd walk off and leave a mess behind them I see and that's when I there's a real tension in my thesis between the utopia that I desperately wanted dance culture to be mm -hmm. and I could see that it could be and the reality that I would look down on the ground and go oh God, more okay, it's just a bunch behind. of dirty bastards, you know, that yeah. us people who care have to come along and pick up afterwards. And nearly all of us who used to pick up rubbish got pretty burnt out. Right. And so from so, that so green the sustainability thing. I see. Yeah. So when the events would finish, would you kind of be there picking up afterwards? Mm -hmm. And yeah, mm -hmm. so that's where our daily waste had its origins. Is that right? Or I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it took me a while, but longer to get there. But I remember, 
<laughs> Trindy Roots, It's the Little Things, was the song that I would always have in my head going, cigarette butts. I got one event <laughs> I did where I could no longer bend down to pick up cigarette butts. Wow. I hadn't discovered grabbers at that point, and I discovered I could pick them up with my toes and, <laughs> and drop them into a bucket. Yeah. And that was a really depressing day. Um, and that was, without a doubt, one of the dirtiest events I've ever picked up at. But what was amazing was you could see, I could tell whether it was an event that had a lot of alcohol, I could tell whether there was more acid or E, because if there was acid, there were lots of little tiny pieces of tinfoil. Hmm. If it was E, there were lots of little plastic bags. Um, <laughs> and people were leaving behind stuff that they had no idea. Like, there'd be a space in the dance floor, for instance, it would, would have been where a blanket was, and there'd just be a circle of cigarette butts hmm. and little things that had been left behind. And, you know, the main volunteers quite often would do the big things, like they'd get the plastic bottles and the cans, but I became a specialist in the little things. And sometimes I'd just sit down and go, oh, wow, okay, so what was going in these people's heads when they were listening to this? And, you know, here you've got Trinity Roots writing, singing Aotearoa and how wonderful it is to be here, and they're flicking their cigarette butts. And yeah. so that became really fascinating for me. Mm. Yeah. And so what did that lead on to? I guess you, you finished your, yeah, your well, when PhD I finished, and then it, does it naturally flow into something? Or Well, it did. Again, there was that classic, I do believe that the university every now and again just puts the right people in your path. Yeah. And I finished and I took off in my van um, for a South Island trip for I think about, oh, I think it was about five or six weeks, where I was working on a first draft of a novel, which... I'm still working on that. <laughs> it was fun to let go of the PhD and just write something that wasn't. Yeah. And I was on the West Coast and pouring with rain and, and I'm at this camp and this guy comes along, this couple come along and they're like, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, well, I said, God, this is going to sound really tossy, but I'm working on a novel. You know? <laughs> I'm writing my novel. And I said, look, I said, I've just finished a PhD, so I'm just in a, I just want to write something else. And yes. they were like, oh, at Canterbury. And I said, yeah. Turns out he was the Dean of the Arts, and I didn't actually know that. <laughs> didn't recognise him or anything like that. Right. Um, but we had this fascinating conversation. He was a great fisherman, so they were on the West Coast for that. And, and then I ran into him on campus one day, and he said, oh, what do you want to do? And I said, oh, I really want to get into sustainability, I think. you know, I think this, this part of my thesis is so important, and I feel like I have to do something with it. And he said, oh, have you gone and talked to the sustainability advocate? And I said, have we got one? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I went, oh, okay. And so I emailed her and she never got back. And eventually I emailed her again. And finally I met up with her and we met in the community garden at, at Canterbury, which I, after years of being a student, hadn't even known was there. Mm. And um, she said to me, you know, what are your skills? And I said, oh, I've done some writing and I've done some this and this and this. And, and um, suddenly she looks at me and she said, are you available from next week? And I said, yes. And she said, oh, I need somebody to run this competition called Eco My Flat. Hmm. And I think you'd probably be perfect for it. So I got a job running Eco My Flat. And when the competition ran out and she discovered that I could write articles for the Canter magazine, um, which she did not like doing. Right. And so she kept me on part time and I picked up a bit of um, tutoring and sort of just mashed together enough income. Hmm. And then eventually the sustainability job became full time when... Um, the advocate changed and and Matt Morris, who's there now, had asked me, he said, oh, look, do you want to do a project over summer? And I said, yes, can I go through the university's rubbish bins, please? <laughs> he said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so I did this seven-week waste order of the university. I had no idea what to do with the waste order. I just 
did it but my way. One. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, We're going to audit the waste at the university. Yeah. Yeah. And I did a different area for each week. And um, and that led to me upgrading the university's rubbish mm. system. So anybody who's out there has used all the red, yellow, green bin lids. That was me who mm. did that. And um, I think I did that. I did the audit between the earthquakes of 2010-11, so um, over that summer. And then I managed to keep my job through 2011 while I was upgrading the system. And then mm-hmm. I got told at the beginning of 2012 that they weren't going to renew my job. Mm-hmm. And by that time, I was getting enough feedback about the system that everybody was going, wow, how can we get that signage? How can we do this? Mm-hmm. And I had friends who were um, working in events in Christchurch, and they just said, look, just do it. Would you just get together somebody? The rubbish at events is useless. You can do it. Yeah. You know, just sort it out and make it into a business. And mm-hmm. I went, I remember sitting down to update my CV, and because I've had so many different jobs, <laughs> it was so tedious, and I just looked at it and thought, oh God, I'm going to have to apply for academic positions, and I'm going to be, and I haven't published yet, and you know, my teaching's great, but I haven't done all that side of it, and I'm just going to be up against it, and I yeah. thought, Oh, God, it's got to be easier to start a business. So right. I, I started. So that's what you did. Yeah. And yeah. then I was lucky that I met, um, I knew Ants, of course, um, mm-hmm. through the dance party scene. Mm-hmm. And um, I talked to him about, you know. Is it Ants Rohan? Yes, Ants yeah. Rohan. Yeah. Sorry, I just forgot his name yeah, there yeah. for a bit. Um, so I sort of wasn't sure whether it would be yeah. a limited liability or whatever. And sure. wanted to talk to him. And he said, why don't you become a social enterprise? I see. And I said, what's that? Yes. <laughs> and he told me, and I said, oh, yeah, that sounds exactly yeah. like what this business is going to be. Oh, that's cool. So yeah. it was just things were Isn't in the right amazing? place at the right time. Yeah, but I love hearing the story. I love hearing everybody's story because there's always these little events that happen, and you look back and you think, how did that happen? How did I was on, you know, driving around writing my novel, and I bump into the <laughs> Dean of Arts, and then I bump into him again, and he's like, you should talk to this person, which mm-hmm. leads to a part-time job, which leads to a full-time setting up a business. Like, yeah. it, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? I think yeah. that's, if there's one thing I've learned, and having been, you know, in the working system now for, well, I started working when I was 15, probably, mm-hmm. I guess. Before that, I started with babysitting, but... Um, when something feels right and when an opportunity comes along and it feels right, you grab it. Yeah. If it doesn't feel right, then do not yeah. force yourself to do it because it's only going to end in tears. Well, that's often the people I interview, often it does come back to that opportunity that presented itself and they grabbed it. And yeah. and I, I do wonder the people, there must be many people out there who are listening who have let opportunities go by. And my hope actually is that this podcast encourages people <laughs> to embrace the opportunities yeah. that present themselves that are random, but lead to things that they never would have predicted, you know? And, and, um, too often I think we get set in our routines and I've got a steady job and an income, but how much is it actually singing with who I am? How, mm. how, how does it fit with who I am? I mean, I was lucky that because I'd been a student for I think it was 12 years all up. Yeah. I was used to being really poor. Right. (laughs) I had one year of full-time salary and oh my God, that was amazing. Yeah, right. Um, I paid off my visa and I went out for dinner and I shouted people dinner. Yeah. (laughs) Bought proper birthday presents and things and and then I lost my job. So luckily I had Mm. enough money saved to buy the lids that I needed to set up the business. Yeah. But because I don't have children and I don't have a mortgage, yeah. then I was in a position where I knew 
that I could handle. Yeah. But, yeah. And I mean, I, there was definitely a year where I had to borrow some money off a friend and then I was stoked to get it paid back really quickly. But yeah. apart from that, I've never been to the bank yeah. to borrow money or anything like that. Yeah. So so just talk us through our daily waste and what the philosophy is. What is it that makes it a social enterprise or what aspect is it that you're bringing to the table? And what exactly is it that you're doing? I, I think I kind of, yeah. I know, but just for people... Um, well, it's a waste prevention and recycling consultancy is its official title that I use. Um, essentially, we just go through bins. <laughs> really what it is, pick up trash, go through it, yep. sort it, handle it. Um, and that's making sure it gets to the right place, yep. whether yep. it's landfill or whether it's recycling well, or whether it's whatever. The thing that really struck me was when I was volunteering for the events was I never once got given a pair of gloves. I never, the people who were expected to pick up rubbish were in general treated just like, oh, there's the hippies, they'll come out and pick up the rubbish, awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, and one event, they even objected to me getting breakfast in the morning because I wasn't official crew. And yet they just watched me do a day, a, a sweep of the of entire cleaning. area for 12 hours the day before, mm-hmm. you know, and... I just got really tired, mm. and it's something I'm really big on at the moment of everybody expecting sustainability to be done by volunteers. Now, it's not so bad if you're planting trees and you're doing the nice side of sustainability, but when you're doing the back-breaking, really nasty side of trash, I just am so tired of everybody going, it needs to be done by volunteers. And I thought, why? Why shouldn't it be professionalised? Why shouldn't you pay for a team to come in and do your event like you do your security and your lighting and your um, sound crew and everything else that gets paid for? Mm. And so I really wanted to professionalise it. Um, It was important to me that we didn't have anything to do with disposal because first and foremost I'm waste prevention. And I use the word prevention rather than reduction. Because to me, if you can prevent it getting on site in the first place, that's a huge win. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether that's an event site or your work site or your home site or whatever. Um, And so I was really big on that. I wanted to be able to provide good, clean recycling systems that were visible. It was really important to me that people see that we were sorting Mm. and that then they would ask questions so that there was an education element to it. Right. I wanted to make it so that the people who were working for me were paid well, so Mm -hmm. I've only ever paid living wage. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was something that was really important to me as a social enterprise. I guess the social enterprise model that you're you're doing something positive Mm. in environmentalism or social um, justice or whatever was one that really struck me. And so to me it was important that we sort of had the education, but we also practical because I think sometimes with sustainability... There's an awful lot of consultants out there who are telling people what they should do, but they're not actually enabling them to do it. And so the first thing we did was invent the signage. So um, luckily my wonderful friend Denise Mill, who is a graphic design tutor, she currently teaches at ARA, and she was between jobs at the time, and so we would get together twice a week and we would painstakingly make icons for rubbish. So she would do them and I'd be like, oh, that needs to be a little bit wider. Or, mm. you know, so I'd sit there with her while she did it. And um, she came with her, up with our graphic design system. Yeah. So the idea is behind the signage that's customised. Mm. So that we've just done um, some, for instance, for the Littleton Port Company, 
so they came back to us three or four times once they trialled it. Nope, we want different icons on it. We need this here, this there. And it's like, okay, sweet, we can do that. Yep. And so my belief is that you can't have a one-size-fits-all for recycling signage because it is so complicated mm. and so different across the country. What isn't isn't recyclable here is completely different in Wellington. So if we do signage for Wellington, I touch base with the council to make sure that what we're putting in is in the right place and all that. So right. we started off with signage, and that was um, put onto the lids that I got made for the events. Mm-hmm. And then um, the first event I did, I had one wonderful woman who used to work with me at uni, um, working for me and a mate, and um, yeah, and... We thought we it was for Lux City, the Festa, first Festa event. We thought we were going to get 5,000 people and we got 20,000 people. Oh, wow. So three of us. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's just say I also did a lot of litter picking the next day. Yeah, that's the backpacking um, stuff, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. And so five years later, I've got a um, database of 20 staff right. that I can call on now. Yeah. Know, so. Oh, that's great. And I think at the Social Enterprise World Forum that was held recently, you were involved in that, weren't you? Yeah, we supplied the rubbish um, mm. and recycling for that. Mm. And also, um, we've been working with the Christchurch City Council on a composting trial. Mm-hmm. So the, the Social Enterprise World Forum is part of that. Right. Um, I was disappointed that I didn't get to do any talks or anything. Apparently, they only wanted us on the outside. But, um, <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> At least it was a Christchurch local social enterprise providing that as well. So it fitted in really well with the with the event yeah no that's good yeah and just um i guess just thinking about packaging waste itself you know it it feels to me like when you go to the supermarket everything is getting even more commoditized and that it's in smaller and smaller packets Mm. as well like i remember buying food and you'd get a substantial amount in the packet but it feels like every couple years it's smaller you know, the 700 grams is now 500 grams, it's now 300 grams, but the packaging's basically similar. Mm. Do, you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Is that something you're noticing um, or is it... Yeah, there's things that have been invented in the past few years that are just do my head in. Mm. Nespresso pods, for one, and I actually cannot watch a George Clooney movie anymore because right. I just associate with him with Nespresso. And I, for the life of me, do not understand how his wife doesn't give him hell about that if she had... <laughs> uh, human rights lawyer because yeah. you know Nestle have one of the worst reputations in the world um, so what's the thinking there that that yeah that, that those pods get created and then that they float off the plastic a, a everywhere come on you can make a coffee without yeah. a pot yeah you know I mean coffee was one of those relatively if you go to C4 and take your jar they will fill it with beautifully mm. ground coffee beans or not ground or whatever it was one of those things that actually doesn't need much packaging yeah But only Nestle could find a way to create, you know, I mean, how much coffee versus how much plastic is in one of those pots. And the other thing that's really done my head um, since I started is the little squeezy pouches for yogurt that kids have now. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And I was in a school and one of these kids had them and I suddenly went, can I have a look at that? And went, oh my God, okay, now we need to make an icon for this for the school. Uh You know, and I... Because I don't have children, I'd never had to see them. Yeah. And I had the classic where I was looking after my six-year-old nephew the other day. And um, we were in the supermarket. I shouldn't know him better. And he wanted, really wanted Nestle Kit Kats. Right. <laughs> I was like, no, you're not getting them. Another brand. Huh? I said, we're going to get the Whitaker's, you know, um, fair trade chocolate. 
And he said, but I don't want that brand. And I said, well, I'm not buying you the other brand. Yeah. I said, so either you eat this chocolate. And he said, but why can't I have that brand? And I was like, oh, how do you explain child slavery to a six-year-old? <laughs> you know? I said, because that brand isn't, I just don't like them. They're not very good. They do a lot of really nasty things to children. And this one's better, you know, and manage to talk them around. But I really feel for parents having to have those conversations if they're trying to be sustainable. Yeah. I mean, I go through the supermarket and... There's only a few aisles I go down because the vast majority of, of the food I eat, I buy in bulk at Binan right. or I buy at veggie stalls. Okay. And so I try to be as packaging free as possible. But of course, I still do get packaging in mm. the supermarket, but mm. I try to keep that to a minimum. Yeah. Um, but I just think I cannot believe, like I've just heard that apparently in the US over the last few years, I've spent $180 billion on um, more plastic refineries. Hmm. I just think it's the most ridiculous use of our dwindling oil resources for disposable plastic. And yeah. It's like, wow, just, you know, really? Can we stop inventing things? Like now, you know, when you put a bag of chips in your kid's lunchbox, it's probably got 10 chips in it. Mm. Well, why can't you buy a big bag of chips and put it in a container for them? Yeah. You know, and that's where I just... It's not just that we've got disposable packaging, but as you said, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. yeah. Well, those those chip packets, I can tell you, you're right. There's like eight chips yeah. in them, isn't there? I There's was just being generous so, with ten. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say because I've I've opened them before. It's like, oh, what? There's nothing here. There's more here. packaging than chips. <laughs> Definitely. And a lot of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. No. It, there's um. Yeah, there's ways that it could be improved. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm too mean to pay for packaging too. That's mm. the other thing. Mm. Is, I don't, you know, and it's really hard. I mean, sometimes I really want something that's packaged, yeah. and I have to make that decision. Occasionally, I break it. You know, where I bought something the other day and went, oh, oh well, let it go. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. once in a year type thing. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's good. So, Sharon, we've covered a lot of ground from music to mm -hmm. what you're doing now, but what does the future hold? Um, well, tomorrow I am going to be presenting to the Canterbury Women's Society. Is it club? Mm -hmm. um, it's a, a society that was started by Kate Shepard in 1913. All right. And I got asked if I would like to be on the committee, and I decided that I'm not a very good committee person. So right. I went to see the... Um, two lovely ladies who are the um, president and vice president. And I said to them, look, what I really want to do is get back into some teaching. And I think it's perfect at the moment for a women's society to do um, something around the Me Too movement. Mm, right. So uh, a friend and I from university are going to be presenting them tomorrow, this course that we're looking at bringing in. Mm. Um, and... It's going to be open to everybody, men, women, trans, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is that there's two parts to the course. It's going to be koha, hopefully, so that we can keep, you know, that people can come if they can afford it or not. Yeah. Um, but we're going to do workshops that are very practically based. So we're going to get someone in from law to talk about what is and isn't legal in sure. terms of sexual harassment and all of that. Mm. Um, get somebody in from the police to talk about, you know, what to do if you are raped, how to preserve evidence, um, mm. what to do if you want to make a historical claim, mm. all of those kind of things. Mm -hmm. Get somebody to come in and teach consent and mm. what it is and how to teach it. Yeah. So that'll be the sort of more practical. I'm hoping I can get Chan from Chan's Martial Arts to um, come and do a self-defence class for women. That right. will be a woman-only 
class. Um, and then we're going to do talks on the other side, which will be a little bit more sort of where uh, Karen's and my background comes in. And that'll be things like, what is the patriarchy, how it operates, the male mm. gaze, mm. Um, all of those things that we're up against. So that there's some context for people that we're not just learning the practical aspects of what to do now, yeah. but the history and how we got here and how to move past that and how to retrain our thinking. Cultural studies. Cultural <laughs> studies. <laughs> A little circle there. <laughs> Whereas I, I've said to somebody, I'm so sick of going through rubbish bins. I've decided to deal with some metaphorical trations. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. If people want to connect about that or find out more, is there a website or um, how, how should they should they reach out to you? We haven't got all that in place yet. Yeah, it's yeah. very, very much in the nascent stages. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully we'll, we'll definitely have something going in the next few months. But if they want to contact me, um, just go to the Our Daily Waste website, yep. which is ourdailywaste.co.nz. Yep. And I'm Sharon at ourdailywaste.co.nz. So yeah. that's the oh, that's way great. to get a hold of me. Yeah. Well, in it, for people who are listening, if they've clicked, they've probably clicked something in a, you know, in an <laughs> app. And underneath it, there will be a description about you and what we talked about. Mm -hmm. And so we'll put in a link to yeah, that so that people can just kind of, at this point, you can scroll down and click yeah. and then they can make great. their way and there. And once we've, I've, I've, booked the website but i haven't got we haven't even started that yeah. it's just been um i only found out that they were keen to do it in november so this yeah. is, and again it was one of those opportunities where i just was proud an opportunity yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i was driving into town thinking oh what could i do for this you know like how could I contribute something to this that's not being on a committee? <laughs> was really what it came down right. to. Right. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. And if you do have the website up in time, once this, because there will be a delay between recording this yep. and actually it going live, so just yep. send me an email and we'll yeah, include like, it. We haven't you know. even talked about who's going to do that yet. Right. It's that yeah. classic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, has anybody got any money for this? <laughs> <laughs> but we're we talking to the club tomorrow, and it's there. Sure. Um, strawberry tea which is the yearly thing that apparently Kate Shepard put in place so I do okay. feel like I'm kind of standing on the yeah. shoulders of giants as that's it were. awesome yeah um and yeah it's pretty exciting and mm. I, I'm one of those people that mm, I've got five to seven years max before I go on oh, what's next what's the next thing yeah <laughs> which does not say I'm giving up our daily waste but the yeah. staff are so good now that I can sort of push some things to them and and find more time to do this yeah Oh, that's good. Well, it's it's been wonderful to hear your story, Sharon, just hearing about your background, where you're from, sort of that ethos of childhood, I think, <laughs> that you, you was instilled in you. It sounds yep. like it's kind of made its way through your, your life course. But then also, I just love, there's at least two, maybe even three, coincidental, you know, mm. um, meetings or words of encouragement or here's these reviews in this desk drawer, <laughs> you know, like it's an amazing yeah. thing. So I think it's really encouraging for people to hear that and yeah. just to hear about embracing opportunity and, and really going for it. So. And use your instincts. Mm. I mean, whenever I've, you know, had a bad feeling about a client mm. or something and I've gone, Oh, I don't think I should be doing this. Yeah. And sure it enough, there's out. been a good reason for me right. not doing that. So I so trust your instincts. Yeah. Trust your instincts. Um, Somebody said to me the other day, oh, you've got a very, you know, female way of running a business. I mm. said, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, I do look at horoscopes and decide whether that's a good business day or whatever. And they're yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, it works for me and it works for the people who work for me. So That's good. And, and I think that one of the things with this podcast is listening to different stories, mm. different ways of doing things. And the fact that you're integrating social enterprise 
into what you're doing. That's yeah. great. And, you know, hopefully more people can be encouraged to be thinking with that ethos. And, and even what we, we didn't go into this in detail, but just the idea of reducing the products that you're buying and the packaging that comes with mm. them, you know, book buying, like that whole, that could be a whole topic itself, couldn't yeah. it? Just what is, what is each person's responsibility or a way that they can have some positive impact? Mm. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that's it. It's just, we're all doing our best. You know, I think there's a lot of us that do really want to see major changes in the world. Mm. And I'm pretty excited as far as sexism goes, 2018's the year mm. that we're going to see some major changes. Mm. And um, yeah, to me, I don't like the way that business is done traditionally. You know, I remember one of my, I did a business class and he said, oh, you shouldn't pay people straight away. You should hold out for as long as possible. Right. And I just thought, nah, no. I don't like that. I need, I love it when people pay me straight away, you know, and so I'm going to do that if I'm in a position to as well. Yeah. And, and just treating staff with respect, you know, I cannot believe how loyal my staff are when you get a day that's 32 degrees and they're going through rubbish bins and right. they're still smiling and joking and yeah. enjoying their jobs. And they tell me that they like their job and I'm like, really? Because yeah. it looks horrible to me. <laughs> I've yeah. done that. And, and I still do it. You know, they know that when the chips are down, I'll still come in and go through the bins and, yeah. and join them. But yeah. I do step away from it a wee bit more. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Ooh, thank you thank so much you. for Likewise. coming. And um, yeah, hopefully you know, our conversation will get people thinking in new and different ways. Yeah. So really appreciate yeah. your time. And encourage people, do what you love. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That's good. All right. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sharon. It was another one of those interviews where we touched on so many different topics, ranging from Radiohead to social enterprise to music, landscape. I just love those ones because we end up talking about things that I never expected when I start the interviews. If you enjoyed it, then consider leaving a rating or review and telling other people about this podcast. And you might want to check out some of those earlier episodes as well, because I've spoken with a lot of people doing social enterprise work, and Sharon was a great example of another one. Until next time. Mm -hmm.